I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Karen Pugliese, APTN, CBC, TMU, CNO, all good training for the top news job in Canada. (laughs) Nice. nice EIC of Canada land. Karen, today on the show, first we kill the grocers. And then a serial killer, a landfill, and an all-too-real metaphor playing out right now in Winnipeg. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Thanks, Jesse. This episode is brought to everybody by John Lapsley, Margaret Eaton, Joy Rutherford, Alana Bartol, Scott Sims, Rory McLean, Aaron Weisgerber, and Sandy. Hey, I'm Sandy Hudson, and I support Canada Land, even though I co-host another podcast, Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. I support Canada Land not only because I love hearing Nora on the show from time to time, but also because independent media like Canada Land and my own podcast are making up for the giant mess that corporate media has made of mainstream news in this country. That and Archie Mann is constantly killing it on Commons. If you haven't listened to the policing season yet, you absolutely must. All right, welcome back to CTV News Channel. Breaking news now coming in from Ottawa. We have some breaking news from the Prime Minister's office. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, are separating after 18 years of marriage. The couple made the announcement on their social media account. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Karen, we just wrapped shortcuts and late breaking news. 
Justin and Sophie calling it quits. Yeah, on their Instagram. Uh, uh, via Instagram. That's so modern. I'm going to hear what you have to say about this for the first time. What do you think? Yeah, because we literally left studio and had to come back in to talk about this. I, you know, I, I, my immediate impression, we're listening to a little bit of the news. It's like, oh, my God, this is going to be a big story that's going to go on for days. The international media loved the Sophie Justin thing. Um, remember when she had COVID, how they published all those wedding photos of them. And like they were so in love with that aspect of their personal lives. I always hated covering this stuff as a reporter because it is their personal lives. I think the mainstream press, they have to spin on it for a little bit, try to figure out what they're going to say about it, and we'll probably leave. But there'll be some columnists, there'll be the polarized press that are going to try to dig in and make something of it. And um, I'll be happy when it's over. I, I had that, like, you know, big breaking news feeling of like, oh, shit, we got to remake. This is big. This is big. This is going to eat up everything for days. Let's get back in the news. We got we to figure out how we're going to handle this. And then I'm like, wait a second. I don't care at all. <laughs> There's nothing to care about. Well, I, I, I care. Like, I feel for anybody who's going through this. I don't care. I don't care. Uh, I mean, I guess, but no, okay, let's do the thing. I guess you got to ask why now? So there's, you know, essentially being a sense that they've been estranged for years. There were comments they gave the press in the past because there were persistent rumors about infidelity on both sides. And then they kind of like dealt with that. They kind of just mm -hmm. said like, hey, we've been through a lot of stuff like many couples. And then the press backed off and didn't really go down that avenue, though there's definitely been opponents and conservatives search for like, who are the Justin Trudeau mistresses and, of, of the past and who are these women and what do they have to say? And like, nobody's ever come up with anything. So the mainstream discourse has been like, They've acknowledged this. We we keep it classy here in Canada. Let's all fuck off. And unless she sings again, let's leave her alone. So why now is one question. But, you know, they, they have coordinated messages about this. They seem to be. The why now would be like we wait for some news of some new partner or infidelity. But the fact that they, they released Instagram statements in tandem, this is like a coordinated. Oh, there would have been so much PR and discussion about how to handle this and what to say and practice questions and thinking about everything that could possibly happen and how best to release it. And should there be, if there is some sort of long-form interview being set up, they've already picked which reporter that's going to be with. There would have been so much coordination behind this. So they've come up with whatever strategy. Maybe it's the Instagram and they just refute all questions. Maybe they've decided to do some heartfelt couples interview with a particular reporter that they selected. That, But that will all have been planned way ahead. Does the coordination go beyond that? Nothing is apolitical when you're the prime minister of Canada. And he has indicated that he's going to run again. And recent polling shows that he's in trouble. And I have to wonder, you know, if you're thinking of the timing of this, and we certainly are aware of the kind of narrative of the estranged political couple who say, like, look, we will get divorced, but just, like, let's just keep appearances up until I'm out of office because I can't deal with this. Look, as a certainty, the impact that this is going to have on the next election was considered. And my first thought was this is, like, a bonus for him because the faded wattage of his international celebrity – is not going to save him in this next election unless the narrative of the single prime minister is something that no one will be able to avoid the same way that nobody was able to avoid him. Like you could not, you couldn't get around his celebrity the first time. And that's just, that was, that was off the table this time around. It was just, you know, he's not going to be on the cover of GQ, but, but now if he shows up with somebody new, no one's going to be able to avoid covering that. 
our uh, managing editor, Annette, was like, have we ever had a single prime minister before? I'm like, yeah, his dad. His dad. <laughs> just the last months I, I looked up, because I was trying to remember when they were divorced, just the last months before he left office, which was probably, as you said, an agreement to wait until. Yeah. January 1st, 1968, the release of a mass market paperback by author Michael Cowley, Sex and the Single Prime Minister, or How Pierre Elliott Trudeau Seduced Canada with the Lights On. So I'm dreading already. The single Justin narrative is— Okay. uh, I'll say this. I don't think the why now was coordinated in the sense— Like, I get what you were saying earlier. People would have considered the PR— and how to handle it whenever you're in politics and something happens, how to take advantage of it. There'll be some legitimate coverage, I think, some legitimate questions about the public interest element of this. I heard a little bit of that. You were just playing CTV and they were saying, well, will he be able to stay focused? And what does this mean? And I think that's a short conversation, but it will go on much longer than it needs to. I, I feel like this has already gone on longer than it needs to. And, yeah. and, and, and like, um, <laughs> Cable news, like, you know, we call it plate spinning. Like, when, when when the disparity between the size of the news event and the information at hand is so great, it's just like, we're, we're now in hour three of, we now have a marriage expert on to talk about marriages and how they sometimes don't work out. Like, the amount of information we have to impart is already exhausted. Yeah. In fairness to us, we're talking about the media analysis of it, yes. which is much more, it's going to be much more interesting to talk about the media coverage of it that we all wish would be much shorter than it's going to be. Than the thing itself. It's going to suck up all the oxygen for a while. And I kind of hope there's more to it just so that it's there's something to talk about because it's otherwise it's just going to be like, come on, let's move on. Get on with it already. So let's get on with it already. We're done. Let's get on with it. Shoppers in the Toronto area have fewer choices if they're looking for groceries this weekend. More than 3,000 grocery workers are on strike, arguing they can't afford to buy food at the very stores they work at. I'm a meat manager. On these union contracts, I'm the highest paid employee. And I can't afford to live in my own city. I can't afford to shop in my own store. It's kind of sad. Like, I'm extremely paycheck to paycheck. We know that corporate grocery stores have been making record profits. Not just any old profits, but record profits. 71% of Canadians believe food costs at their local grocery stores will be even higher six months from now. Mark Berry says a recent trip to this grocery store, owned by Loblaw, was humiliating. He says just before leaving the store, the wheels on his shopping cart suddenly locked. Excuse me, this is a message for Galen Weston Jr., Baby G Money West. Can you please lower the price of these President's Choice Chicken Swisses for me? Put them on sale again. Galen Weston will be stepping out of the spotlight as Loblaw president and CEO. That's right, Loblaws, after over a year of coming up with every possible excuse for why grocery prices are so high and crying poor and how it's all everyone else's fault, just posted a $500 million plus Q2 profit. Karen, we played a lot because it goes on and on. It's across the media. Here's from print, the Toronto Star. Revenge of the wage earner. Metro grocery strike part of larger labor trend. Experts say voices of consumers, voices of citizens, voices of workers. Here is the Globe and Mail. It's time for the government to step in to freeze grocery prices. An opinion piece by our friend Vass Bedner. And the National Post? Inflation is down overall, so why are my grocery bills still going up? Is this the National Post or the Daily Worker? What is this <laughs> pinko commie rag? Why am I reading in the Globe and Mail articles that sound increasingly like Pravda? 
Is is Canada's mainstream press actually going pro-worker? Our reporters are hungry. Hungry for stories. <laughs> <laughs> that must be it. The reporters are hungry. The reporters are paying too much for their mac and cheese. And so even the establishment rags are, like, they're sharpening their pitchforks. It, it just feels like eat the rich stuff in, like, right-wing Canadian newspapers. <laughs> the labor press of Canada. What's going on? Well, somewhat. You know, I, I think it's one of those stories that actually do affect reporters and you know, the the industry, so it's something they directly relate to. I mean, never has it been more miserable to be in journalism. You know, everybody's just, you know, a paycheck away from being laid off. And everybody's affected by the same kind of fears of walking into a grocery store and seeing prices go up. It's it's unaffordable for everybody. And so I think then there's the irony of the people who are working there who I think were very much on all of our minds during the pandemic. You know, I was thinking about all those stories about grocery store workers who kept going into work during the pandemic and the risk they were taking before there was, you know, a vaccine. And now the irony of them going on strike and not being able to afford the food that they're serving. It it all just adds up to one of those broad stories that affects everybody, even journalists, and has that twist of irony to it. I mean, it's they're getting what they deserve because if, if you make a big fuss during this moment of like, look at our workers, these are essential workers, we're giving them hero pay. Well, then when you take that pay away from them, like you've kind of set yourself up, you know? And like when Galen Weston is like the face of the Loblaw Corporation and like they're in his nice homey sweater, like saying like, don't worry, we're freezing the price of, of no frills products. It's like, well, now we know you can do that. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like none of this bullshit of like, no, sorry, we're just like, we're helpless here for market forces. We 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 must charge these things or else uh, we would, what? I don't know what. You wouldn't make a $500 million profit. Like, their, their profits are up 30%. Like, we're not dumb. And I think that they're treating us like we're dumb. And that's why this, like, growing sense of public discontent and rage. And then they start, like— you know, treating us like criminals and penning us into their stores with these security gates and people checking your bags. And like, people don't know that you do not have to comply with that technology, like shopping carts that freeze on you, the wheels <laughs> seize up, like people like they're, they're, they're really asking for it. And I mean, it's just on the street. Like I'm seeing the lineups of the food banks. And these are these stores that I think people are f- furious with. Cause like, you don't feel like you have a choice. Like I've made the decision like five, 10 times in my life. Like I'm not going to that chain anymore. And they're just so ubiquitous that you can't do anything about it. Like, you, you, you can't boycott them if you wanted to. There's a consensus being reached. Like, I, I like it. I like the rage. <laughs> There's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I got into journalism because I particularly love the feeling of moral outrage and hanging out with people who have moral outrage about things. And that's where a lot of good stories come from. But you, you just said so much to unpack there. There's that weird futuristic dystopia of your shopping cart wheel freezing. I actually saw somebody, I was shopping in Loblaws, and somebody ahead of me tried to sneak out with their groceries. They were going through a self-serve. And just when somebody wasn't looking, they took their groceries out. And the the poor schmuck working there, as it turns out, can't afford to buy groceries himself, probably, had to chase this guy down and, you know, be oh double as a security guard. If you are working at Loblaws, do not chase shoplifters. Just fucking let him go. Oh, yeah. I noticed the National Post article had talked about this study that had been done, and it's actually, it was by the Computition Bureau, but it's actually called 
Canada needs more grocery competition. Mm-hmm. So it's just right in the title what they think the the problem and the solution is. Because I went and I took a look at the report, and I thought it was really interesting to see the evolution of what we've been told. Because we're all told there were supply chain issues during the pandemic. And that, that made sense. I mean, everything was going up. Everything was hard to get. Obviously, you know, like interborder shipping, everything, fine. We, we understood that. And then we were told, well, you know, there's the war in Russia and the Ukraine. And, of course, that's affecting grains, breads, food oils. And that kind of makes sense. They had these kind of real-life events, but they're kind of gaslighting us now to pretend that's still why the prices are going up. I think gaslighting is the right word, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, like the counter-narrative has been, like, basically they've been saying, like, I know you're very mad at us, but it's not our fault. You just don't understand economics. So I want to leave open the possibility that I'm dumb and just don't understand the market realities here. And it's interesting because, like, sometimes when you read this stuff from, like, the business news from Bloomberg or something, you get a different perspective. Like, there's this article, Loblaw moves to counter the grosser profiteering narrative. So this is the PR side. And, of course, Galen Weston stepped down. They had that disastrous run when they were, like, in Twitter on Twitter – like individually responding to their critics being like, hi there, Brad, I know you're frustrated about the cost of chicken, but it's really not our fault. And I I do note that there's like other research coming out. I'm always suspicious of where, but you know, this is research by economists at the Bank of Canada. So this is not commissioned research, but the way it's presented, like the Globe and Mail has a piece up, profits did not cause inflation, Bank of Canada researchers contend. And there's a picture of like a grocery So corporate markups had little impact on inflation in Canada over the past three years, according to new research by economists, challenges the notion that runaway prices were driven by business profiteering. The paper published Tuesday found that markups rose early in the COVID-19 pandemics. However, the growth in markups slowed in 2021 and declined in 2022. The research lands in the middle of a thorny debate about the sources of inflation. Some left-leaning economists and politicians, notably Jagmeet Singh, have blamed inflation on opportunistic corporate price-setting behavior, so-called greedflation. But companies such as Loblaw and Metro have drawn intense political and public ire for reporting bumper profits at a time when prices are rising fast. And I've seen this piece cited, you know, by uh, like grocer apologists. <laughs> we live in an age of grocery <laughs> apologists. Grocery apologists. And, and, grocery, and it's like, like, there's all like, you're secretly working for, and like you know, all these types. And and people being like, okay, dummy, you don't understand. Like here, here is the article, here's the research from the Bank of Canada that shows the grocers are not to blame. But I ain't no genius, but what I'm reading here is what they're saying is, yes, we did increase our markup. So not just like rising our prices because our costs were rising, but the level at which we were profiting, we we said, oh, everyone's used to prices going up anyhow, so let's raise them a little bit more because no one will notice, right? Like, like really taking advantage of people at a time when they're most vulnerable for the things they need to live. But what they're saying is, well, we stopped doing that, right? The rate at which we were we were increasing our markups has decreased. And don't blame us for inflation. Uh, I, I never thought that the rise in grocery prices were causing inflation. I thought that they were taking advantage of inflation mm-hmm. to rise their prices beyond what they needed to. Anyhow, people aren't dumb. Like the bottom line is the bottom line. And when you read that their profits are up 30%, they say stupid things like they, they just treat us like idiots. Like, oh, our profit margin is so small. It's a 3% profit. Yeah, but you're dealing in billions. 
So we, we understand that you're making billions in profits and you're making more profits than you ever used to. Like what part of that are we getting wrong? Yeah, Loblaws, Sorbies, and Metro collectively report more than $3.6 billion in profits is what the Competition Bureau study said. You know, I think, like, for the average person and the average reporter, these systems, like, of course, it's complicated. Business is complicated. You're thinking of shipping. You're thinking of gasoline. There is the war. There was the pandemic. The pandemic is over. The supply chains should be straightened out right now. And we're being told that those things are actually, the prices were rising independently of that anyway. The Competition Bureau says that it is basically arbitrary price increases that are going on. But I think for your average person who steps out and goes in and sees that food is going up and that the profits of the grocery stores are going up and it's increasing so much above the inflationary rate, that's that's just the problem. That's the problem. And inflation is getting curbed. It looks like they're actually bringing it down. And everyone yeah. kind of knows that your food prices are not going to come down, right? Like, I don't know. And it was interesting. I read, you know, I didn't know until Vass Bedner wrote it in the Globe and Mail that the government actually has the power to actually step in and limit the prices of like, you know, you, you can't charge more than that from now on. They've done oh, it before. Oh, because you're young. You don't remember Pierre Elliott Trudeau and price and wage controls. Very controversial. Oh, my God. Okay, so on the conservative side, they hate price and wage controls. And on the left side, they love price and wage controls. I mean, that seems like a pretty obvious lever the government has pulled in the past and could pull. And the other one, you know, is just the the point that I think commons – the big problem here is monopoly. Like, my grandparents, like, you know, like, there's a lot of people, like – whatever, like new Canadians start like have like a convenience store. That's the first business. My grandparents at the time before big mega conglomerate grocery stores, it wasn't a convenience store. It was just your like corner grocer. They lived above it. It was essentially like, like subsistence farming because they had no labor costs because they'd put like their eight-year-old, you know, my dad behind the cash <laughs> register and you would like, you know, you'd eat your own inventory and live off of it and whatever profits, like that's just how families and there was one in every corner. And, you know, it's like still this like thing that they kind of hearken to in that like, you know, even in the Loblaws chain, it'll be like Joe's Independent. It's actually called the Independent as if you're at your your local grocer's. No, that is a Loblaw chain corporatized, like, like it is monopoly. That's the problem. So I think price controls is one solution, but it'd be interesting to see after completely losing the labor beat in our newsrooms, this like consensus from the left to the right in Canadian mainstream media, or maybe it's just hungry reporters, <laughs> like rediscovering these concepts and reminding the electorate that like, yeah, your government can do something about this. I, mean, I don't know. It's kind of encouraging. And it's the convergence of like, everybody seems to be angry. So maybe the press can play a role in informing people of what to do with that anger. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Karen, you know well, of course you know the format of the show. You're the editor-in-chief of the show. <laughs> I better know. Uh, we do leave. <laughs> if I don't know now, Candleland's going down. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a problem. So let's duly note some news that people need to hear more about. What do you have for us? So I'm going to duly note something that Aviva actually pointed out to me. It was in the Times columnist. And it's about a ferry in BC that was saved by a foam football. Okay, I've heard a lot about the BC ferries. <laughs> this is a ferry that goes between French Creek and Laskiti. And, you know, it's one of those passenger ferries. It's kind of bumpy. Laskiti is this kind of hippie island where there's a lot of feral sheep that wander around. And I guess there was like a hole in the ferry. And somebody aboard the ferry just happened to have this foam football that they're able to stuff in and save the day. <laughs> You know, I, unfailingly, it's like talking to Torontonians about shitty subways and transit. You, you talk to somebody from BC, and they will they will talk your ear off about their grievances. I think we now know the solution. If everybody just has like a <laughs> a, a foam football, then uh, problem solved. Yeah, if only a foam football could fix the subway system. Duly noted. I want to duly note that it's over. It's over between Canadian News and Facebook, and it's hit us. Already we're getting reports that people who are trying to share our stuff or see our stuff on Instagram or Facebook, uh, it's getting blocked. And probably by the time people are listening to this, Canada Land and everybody else will be off, booted off of uh, Facebook and Instagram and maybe threads. Actually, Jesse, I was one of the early people who got blocked on Instagram. And I noticed that a bunch of places were blocked. Candleland was not. And yes, um, Candleland is now blocked on my very own Instagram. Yeah, very flattering to know that they consider us news and therefore uh, are banning us. And, you know, all of the work that, like, we put into getting people to like our page and building up our Instagram, you know, like, like this is just a welcomed and encouraged to uh, not just put our content on this platform, but create content for this platform so that people who want to get it can get it there was all wasted effort. It's a dead venue for us and everybody else. It affects us less than others. There are other, you know, like website-based news services and, and digital startups in Canada that are really, really affected by this, that really rely on Facebook for not just for traffic, but like, you know, there's like, there's like, there's a business plan that like Village Media and others have where when there's a community, local news that, that like has been abandoned by mainstream news, the community will start a Facebook community page. 
and everybody's trading information and often gossip and bad information. And then they want to set up shop and build a newsroom. Where do they go to let people know? They go and they advertise, they give Facebook money and they say, hey, we have a news site for this community. And that's a really important way of building that audience. And then they use Facebook further still to get people to get traffic. And, and, and that's, that's really, that's gone now. And that's, that's like, there is a freeze there. There's a hiring freeze at village media. They're not expanding into new markets. This is something that is really affecting a lot of news. The parts of the news business in Canada that actually were growing are now on, on like standstill because of this. And, you know, there's a vibe out there of like, everybody's dumping on Facebook and, you know, like you're being mean to Canada and, and this is bad and, and you've been stealing. And I, I everyone knows that I don't really partake in that. <laughs> Like th- this yeah, was pe- people kind of know your opinion on this by now. Look, this is entirely predictable. It's exactly what they said they would do. It's rational. Like you know, here's an analogy: if if you're running a like community coffee shop and you've got a bulletin board at the front and it's free for people to come and stick like guitar lessons or garage sale, and you do that not out of charity, but it, it helps keep people coming into your coffee shop and it creates a sense that your coffee shop's a bit of a community hub. That's a nice thing to offer for free, but it also helps your business. But then imagine the mayor says to you, hey, you're stealing these notices. From now on, every time somebody puts up a guitar lesson flyer, you have to pay them a dollar. It would be entirely rational for that coffee shop to say, well, A, that's absurd, and B, we're taking down the bulletin board. So I, I can't blame anybody but the government for Facebook banning news. But I don't want that to be confused with like support for Facebook or sympathy for Facebook. Facebook is not a local coffee shop, right? Like, I think the analogy only goes so far. Because- the analogy only goes so far. I was going to refuse to duly note this, but <laughs> please continue. <laughs> I, this is actually what I want to duly note here is like, because, you know, we're parting company. We're, we're after years of news and Facebook having a relationship, we're saying goodbye to each other. And I do have some words here because they're not a coffee shop. There's something that we've never, there's no analogy for mm-hmm. Facebook. They're, there's something new. They are a, a privacy invading, division sowing, <laughs> compulsion creating ad company that builds machines that make us hate and fear each other. And make us lose faith in the very possibility of objective truth. And they didn't, you know, set out to build that, but that's what they ended up building. They have wreaked havoc. They've done damage to our attention spans, to our our civics, to our relationships, to our public and private lives. And they have lied to us about that. As they've done that, put a, like a, a few dimes here and there into programs and tell us that they're doing the opposite of that. And I remember when the Trudeau government partnered with them on like the democracy strengthening, you know, like, like they're actually telling us that they're helping us. And specifically with reference to news where they have just like left things in such a shambles after encouraging us to make videos and encouraging us and encouraging us. And now look, this is what they said. I remember what they said. Just two years ago, this is from Meta, Facebook. We know the important role journalism plays in keeping people informed and safe, which is why we want to do our part to contribute to the long-term sustainability of journalism and help increase underrepresented voices in newsrooms. In addition to the News Innovation Test, we're investing $8 million over the next three years to help Canadian publishers build sustainable business models through programs like the Facebook Canadian Press News Fellowship and the BIPOC Media Growth Program, we will continue to listen to the people who use our apps to provide them with the best experience and closely collaborate with publishers to support them in delivering quality journalism. Well, I get why they're banning news. I do. But they're also calling off their sustainability checks, their actual business deals. 
And they're doing it very cynically. They're not doing it the same day that they ban news because that would compound all the bad press. They're letting people get checks for three more months, I understand, before all these newsrooms, some of them small, struggling newsrooms that, that believed Facebook or at least had reason to, to believe Facebook. We're, we're investing in your long-term sustainability and we're going to license your news content. All of that money is drying up and there is nothing stopping Facebook from continuing to support news in Canada with help to make up for some fraction of the damage they've done. There is nothing to stop them from continuing that. And it's just spiteful taking their ball and going home as a fuck you to the government and we're getting caught in the middle of this. So I guess what I want to duly note as we say goodbye to this period of news and Facebook collaborating is fuck you guys. <laughs> fuck you, Facebook. Honestly, we disagree on so many things, but I've got your back on that comment. Duly noted, fuck you, Facebook. Karen, just a content warning before we play some news clips for our next segment. This coming segment deals with missing and murdered Indigenous women. As calls continue to search the prairie green landfill for the remains of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron, support is rolling in across the country. For a 12th day, demonstrators held their ground outside this landfill in Winnipeg in spite of a court injunction to stay off the road. You will search the landfill and if you will not, you will hand me the shovel and you will hand me the hazmat suits myself and our community will go in there and retrieve our woman. Protests against police hit a peak this week. They're feeling the heat this summer as tensions rage on over police priorities. Search landfills for the remains of Indigenous women or host an international sport competition for first responders. Karen, this is just like a ghastly story. I think people will recall the basic facts of this. The two murder victims who are believed to be in the landfill are members of the Long Plain First Nation. They are believed to be the victims of serial killer Jeremy Skibicki, who is accused of preying on women found in homeless shelters. He's facing four charges of first-degree murder in the deaths of Morgan Harris, Rebecca Contois, Mercedes Myron, and an unknown woman who is referred to as Buffalo Woman. The women were killed, left in a dumpster. The remains of two of the victims are believed to be at Prairie Green Landfill in Manitoba. So the premier of Manitoba says that it is too expensive and too dangerous to search the landfill for these remains and confirm what is suspected. And also said, well, it's not likely that we'll actually find them anyhow. And there has been anger and frustration. There has been this blockade, a protest. This is something that has played out for me. It's one of these news stories that feels like it's from a movie or something. The drama of this, the survivors of these women demanding angrily, go look for my mother in this landfill. God damn you. It feels like something from like, you know, three billboards outside Ebbing. Like, like it feels like a, a Netflix dog. It's so dramatic and it's, it's just so awful. And then it kind of disappeared from my news feeds. You know, you have the, the dramatic moral outrage, and then you've kind of got the authorities being like, we hear you, but it's just not practical what you're asking for. We can't do it. And then it disappears. But I don't think it's disappeared from everybody's radar, and I'm aware that this story has played out very differently in Indigenous circles, and for those who are paying close attention to this, can you talk a little bit about what this story has meant for you? And, and I guess maybe, like, what is the difference between my newsfeed and yours on this one? Yeah, 
It's hard to even know where to start with this story. It's almost got, like, historic roots because the missing and murdered Indigenous women story is a very long-standing one and very deeply rooted in First Nations communities. Like, it's changed so much of the conversation and the culture amongst Indigenous people. And I, I think that's part of what's playing out here that I think is kind of missing from the mainstream coverage. A few things I've noticed about the media coverage that I think they've done well. One is the focus on the families and the focus on the victims and that they're not focusing on the serial killer. So often in the past, and this has been a longstanding discussion in newsrooms that, that dates back to when I was a little cub journalist, is how much attention do you put on the killer versus the families? Here, I've, I've got to say the media is kind of doing it right. We're, we're not being distracted away from what the families need, what the families are trying to accomplish, and what they want to have happen. I think the other thing that's interesting, one of the things is there's a feasibility study that was done. And it agrees, yes, this is going to be, one, super expensive. I think the price quoted was in between $84 million and $184 million. It could take up to three years to search the landfill to find the remains of these women. And that it's going to be, they're going to, people are going to have to have, like, uh, take great precautions because of chemicals and other waste products that are in there that are dangerous to human health. But it is possible. It's just expensive. And so that sets up the tension in this story. I guess the way that I'd put this is that First Nations people have now become masters of how to get the media back in and continue to engage in this. In some ways, they're leading the coverage. I remember early in the missing and murdered Indigenous women days, people would cover a story and then say, well, there's no update. There's nothing more to cover. So women and families came up with things like they would release balloons into the air or they would hold on the anniversaries some sort of five-kilometer sports run or something to kind of celebrate. So now here they've at points uh, put up a peace camp. They at points were, were blocking the dump where the women are to, you know, prevent people from going in, holding, you know, costing the city money because it has to revert because it's garbage somewhere else, I guess. So so you managed to keep this in the news. So that that's something that I think the community has done well at keeping mainstream media engaged. But the gap is how we're really understanding the story. And this is where my feed might be different from yours. When I'm looking down the Indigenous feed, when I'm reading APTN, I'm reading Windspeaker and Indigenous media, there's a great understanding that this is genocide, systemic. And, I, I mean, you hear that in the voice of one of the victim's daughters, Cambria Harris. She talks about genocide. She talks about the life of her mother and residential schools, and the child welfare system, and all these things that interfered to make her mother vulnerable. Where were those resources then? Why is it just being offered now? My mother, Morgan Harris, utilized those resources, and now she's dead in the bottom of a landfill at the blood of your own fucking hand. So that she would become a victim of a serial killer who thought that he could put First Nations women into the garbage, drop them off in a dump, and nobody would care. And that's something that the report on missing and murdered Indigenous women talked about. And so when you see people out at these vigils ar around the dump, and they're saying, we are not garbage, we are not garbage, and they're talking about genocide, it recalls everything. It recalls to me the years that Cindy Blackstock was fighting 
and saying, you know, the child welfare system is underfunded and you're taking children unnecessarily away from families and it's breaking everybody's heart and it's destroying families. And the government said, oh, no, 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 it's just we're, we're spending enough money and like it's too expensive. Or when Attawapiskat needed a school and the children went to talk to the minister and said, we just need a school here. And the minister said, we can't afford to give you one. Too bad. All these things that set people up for failure and to make them vulnerable is what the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry was talking about when it used the term genocide. It's a very polite Canadian type of genocide that we have going on in this country. And the mainstream media resisted, wrote a bunch of editorials against the use of that word, did ridiculous things like tried to compare it to Rwanda. We're having two different conversations again in between mainstream media and then how Indigenous people are understanding what's going on here. To mainstream media, it's an individual case. To Indigenous people, it's a long-term, long-standing issue by which women are made vulnerable and so vulnerable that you can throw them into a garbage dump and people will say it's just too expensive or too troublesome to look for them. I think that that we are having two different narratives about this in two different conversations because there are concepts that I think are, are, are not well understood. I think it's it's been a long process to get people to understand, even taking a term like genocide, which was once kind of like relegated to people's like ideas of holocausts and um, actual programs to, to, to murder an entire genome, an entire ethnicity, and, and educate people on what, what a culture, what, what an organized cultural genocide is with a, against a lot of resistance of people who feel it should not be applied, even though the, the origins of the term include cultural genocide. And you'll have your Conrad Blacks and, and the rest saying, oh, don't appropriate this term. I mean, things were bad, but they're not that bad. And getting to a point where we educate the Canadian public and, and people to know when you have things like residential schools, the explicit purpose is to get rid of this language, to get rid of this culture, ultimately to get rid of this people through assimilation. When we're, we're getting there, people are getting that, especially when you're, when you're talking with a reference to things like residential schools or the 60s scoop, take babies from their parents and put them in that. Yes, you are trying to stop that type of person from existing anymore. Then you get to missing and murdered and then a serial killer. And yeah, that's where I feel like the education that like, we haven't gotten to that class yet. You know, and even the prime minister, Stephen Harper, was just like, ah, this isn't act. You, you can't call this. This isn't on us, the federal government, because, you know, these deaths, it's it's just a hand. It's really just a collection. He brushed it off as like just like though it's, you know, the numbers are shocking. It's it, they're just a, a combination of individualized cases. And I think that the way that this was most brushed aside was saying like, oh, it's within the community that these, these things are happening. And then you take this to a serial killer and like. I think you're going to lose a lot of people who are like, look, I understood that there were systems running residential schools and there's systems behind 60 Scoop. What system is behind a serial killer? That's an outlier. That's a freak occurrence. It doesn't happen every day. The relationship is serial killers prey on the vulnerable. This guy targeted women in homeless shelters. Yeah. The systems make indigenous women vulnerable to killers and all kinds of other bad outcomes. And there, and then you do get to a social phenomenon, a crisis on the scale of missing and murdered in which it, it, it becomes, yeah, it's a part of this narrative of genocide. That's not the news I'm getting every day. You know, I, I'm getting news about specifics. I'm getting news. And, and in the rationalizing way that we talk about news, I, I, I won't pretend that I'm not 
compelled by some of this or thinking about this from like, well, yeah, you know, like they're like, Winnipeg's got a lot of problems, 84 million to $184 million. Like that's a, that's a lot, you know, but I think what we're actually being forced to face here in a pragmatic sense is like, what are the limits of our, I don't want to say compassion. What are the limits of reconciliation? We all care about this stuff, but like we're being forced to put a price to like, how much do you care? If it was 1 million, they would have done it by now. Right. So like, we're, we're like, we're, what's the number? I, I hope if it was one million, they would have done it by now. I, but I don't know that. That's that's the whole thing. There, there's so much at stake here. There's the signal that it sends to other individuals, other cases of people who commit violence against Indigenous women that were not valued. It's the ongoing narrative that police won't look for us. You know, for, for all those families that were told over the years by police, oh, well, your daughter probably just ran away, or police lied to people and said, we have to wait 48 hours before we search for somebody. And that's not true. They could have searched right away. Um, there were all these signals that the missing and murdered Indigenous women's inquiry went over. And, and, and exactly what you said, creating women and putting them in vulnerable places. And so the systems are there, and that's really what Cambria Harris is talking about when she talks about what happened to her mother and how her mother ended up in a homeless shelter, ended up being vulnerable. And so we can see the patterns, but nobody in the mainstream media is really, they're playing the clips, but they're, they're not, it's like they don't understand what they're hearing or they're not connecting the dots. And then it, it, it lands in a very familiar place where you've got a hot potato of municipal government saying, hey, we feel you, but we don't have the money for this. Let's talk to the federal government. The federal government says, hey, this isn't our jurisdiction. So Karen, what do you want to see happen here? Like, And my understanding is that because this evokes so many instances of cops not lifting a finger or putting the blame back on the community, it's, you know, it's another scale of that. It's, and it's playing out on the national level, but I think it's, it's, it's hitting those chords for, for so many indigenous people and specifically indigenous women that the story has not escaped from your feed or for, from your attention. What's the, what is the right outcome here, both in terms of the coverage and, and the action that should be taken? You put me in a spot because I'm a journalist, not an advocate. But having covered these stories year after year after year, it's time to start making up and reversing, I think, the, the trend that's been going on. Listen to the families. That's Shortcuts. Karen, thank you for joining me. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed about anything you heard today at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. Karen. Yes. Where can people reach you? Oh, well, they, they can reach me here at Canada Land. Karen at canadaland.com. That's Karen with a Y at canadaland.com. <laughs> this episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is uh, you, Karen Puglese. Our theme music is by so-called syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Listen, as I said, uh, we are not findable on Facebook or Instagram anymore. Fewer people are going to get our news as a result of that, but we are not going anywhere. What you can do right now to make sure you don't miss anything we publish is subscribe to our newsletter comes out every Friday, keeps you up to date with all of our stories in case you missed one or two. It gives you some insight, insight into our team, 
And we have also started highlighting stories from other independent Canadian news outlets. It's a great way to stay up to date. It is free. Check it out. There's a link in our show notes or just go to canadaland.com. Sign up for our awesome newsletter. If you value this podcast, I want you to support it. We rely on listeners like you to pay for journalism, and we want to give you all kinds of things that are great. Premium access to our shows, ad-free, early access, bonus content, which we're putting more and more out all the time. Our exclusive newsletter, that's another newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. We're also doing more of those than ever before. But look... The bottom line is this, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis when you support us. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible for everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, which is included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.